Hello and welcome once again to the Check Down Charlie's podcast. I am Eric and I'm with my buddy Theo. How's it going, Theo? Pretty good. You know, uh, we're doing this remote thing again. We're not doing it in person. Exactly. Uh, it's fine. It works out. You know, we're, uh, we've gone our separate ways. It's a little sad, but that's the <laughs> at thing. least thing done. And it's not quite as bad considering, obviously, with you know, the whole COVID thing going on that probably we might have had to do this remotely even if I was in Canada. I don't know. I, maybe it's a silver linings uh, playbook type thing that I'm thinking of. But uh, at, at the same time, you know, the important part is us doing it together and getting this content out uh, and doing the history of the Giants. Am I right? Yeah, we do it for the fans. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do it for the fans. And today we are going to be talking about uh, one uh, or another pivotal moment in Giants history. Today we will be talking about the first miracle at the Meadowlands. So why don't you get us start started on that? Yeah, just a, a little note before this, we, we had left you off uh, moving to the Meadowlands, which was um, when the Giants transitioned from uh, New York City to New Jersey. And this is like... We had mentioned that they had played pretty poorly up until then. And this was sort of like the pivotal moment that had changed their luck on the football field. So uh, the miracle at the Meadowlands uh, took place in the in the late 70s, which was... It was 1978. So technically it was like 78, 79. And like just mm-hmm. to expand a little bit on what you had mentioned i think that they did have a streak of 18 straight seasons where they didn't make the playoffs and this was kind of at the very end of that streak so starting in the early 60s to about i think it was 81 uh they did not make the playoffs and uh, i think miracle at the meadowlands was kind of the culmination of all of that uh, and kind of gave them a kick in the ass in that way Mm-hmm. So, um, so it refers the miracle of the Meadowlands refers to a specific game. So, uh, on November nineteenth, nineteen seventy eight, they played uh, the Philadelphia Eagles at home. So, this was actually the first season in which the NFL had gone to sixteen weeks, and the Giants were five and six entering the game. Um, mm-hmm. We mentioned the move to New Jersey, which took place in nineteen seventy six. It definitely had alienated some fans. There was like a sentiment that the Maras were just in it for the cash because they could ex- they could expand their revenue stream. At the time, like organizationally, Wellington Mara and his nephew Tim both managed the team, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Like there was definitely some toxicity in management, like to the point where uh, both owners never spoke to each other. You know, Wellington Mara actually put up like Venetian blinds. In the in the in their their owner's box, so it could be separated uh, by Tim. And Tim added to that by putting wood paneling on those Venetian blinds. So petty, so, <laughs> so petty. So at the time of the miracle, the head coach was was John McVay, and he had ran the team since 1976. Fun fact: John McVay is actually the grandfather of current. Los Angeles Rams head coach Sean McVay Mm -hmm. and he didn't last long and we'll go into it a little bit more but he ends up 
playing a pivotal part in NFL history overall. So it was pretty toxic management environment, but also on the field. Players complained about the assistants, particularly on offense with the coordinator, Bob Gibson. So at the time, he would call plays from the press box, which nowadays I know you can see like it's it's pretty common practice yeah. for that to happen nowadays. I would say. Because there, there's like staffs are a lot bigger. Like you have a lot of skill position coaches that just they're on the field working with the players. But at the time, it wasn't as much of a standard practice, Eric. So coordinators in the late 70s were a little bit more, should have been a little bit more hands-on. Yeah. And this guy just wanted to, you know, call beaters up from the skybox. Well, that's the thing. It's being with the team versus being able to see the entire field and therefore, you know, maybe it helps you to make defensive or adjustments to the defense uh, or adjust to what the defense is doing more so than being down there. But then from a psychological standpoint, I can see how, especially if the Giants weren't doing so well, again, it's one of those things, it's like, if they're winning, it's not a problem. But because they weren't necessarily the best team, you know, people start to nitpick it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. If if calling plays from the skybox works, right. you nobody's know, complaining about it. That's why people do it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I guess, like, if you're in an environment where you feel like your coach doesn't really like you or, you know, it's a very impersonal type of, of culture, which football, uh, successful football organizations don't make it seem to be, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, they, they treat it more as a family. Yeah. That having your dude, you know, like, all the way up there while you're on the field is not a good feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the quarterback at the time was uh, Joe Pisarczyk, who, um, you know, I didn't even know who he was at the time. Like, I didn't even recognize his name. And yeah. it's sort of funny because his, his nickname is actually Off-Broadway Joe. <laughs> That's in reference to Joe Namath, uh, who won the Jets' only Super Bowl, and his nickname was Broadway Joe. He was in a bunch of commercials and stuff in the 60s, so I guess... And I guess it could be a reference to them moving to New Jersey as well, right? So yeah, they're off, bro. Exactly. Yeah. And basically, yeah. After the season, he he just picked up and left and went to Philly to uh, be a backup to Ron Jaworski. Mm-hmm. So the Eagles at the time they were rolling in hot. They came in into the game at at six and five. Mm-hmm. During the actual game, the Eagles were down seventeen twelve, and they had missed an extra point. And messed up the exchange for another one. Right. So instead of being down by field goal, 17 to 14, they were down by five points. Mm -hmm. So with limited time in the fourth quarter, the Giants had the ball. And Gibson called running plays to Larry Zonka to kill time. Larry Zonka, famous Dolphins running back. Yes. Ended his career in New York just for a, a brief period of time. So... This is another interesting thing. At the at the time of this game, the, the quarterback kneel did not exist. So for those of you who don't know what a quarterback kneel is, it's just a, essentially a play in which the quarterback takes a knee and kills 30 seconds or whatever off the clock. Right. It's also known as the, the victory formation, right? So like if, for yeah. example, you're up and you have the lead and 
the ball and you don't want to risk anything happening, then you would just take a knee and, like you said, kill the rest of the clock. Yeah. And also at the time, the the game clock was only 30 seconds long instead of what it is today, which is 40 seconds, which that was established later in 1987. Hmm. Instead of uh, taking a knee, what teams would do in in the late 70s was for the quarterback to take the ball and to just hit the ground, like roll around so they could kill time because essentially he's down, you know, the play is pretty much dead. Right. So head coach John McVay despised that, mm-hmm. that common practice. So instead they, they wanted to just run the ball with Zonka to kill time off the clock. So what ends up happening is that they have an exchange and Larry Zonka didn't want the ball. And during the play itself, John McVay's headset was not working. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is the center, Jim Clack, snaps the ball to avoid a delay of game penalty. Because Sarchik, who was at the time arguing with the offensive coordinator, uh, Bob Gibson, up in the box, was unprepared for the snap, bobbles the ball, and tries to hand it off to Larry Zonka, I mean, to Zonka, which hits him on the hip. What ends up happening is that Herman Edwards the cornerback for the Philadelphia Eagles yes. scoops it up with limited time on the clock and ends up locking it in for a touchdown. Yeah. And he has a famous soundbite with him as a coach where he uh, responds indignantly to a reporter and says something to the effect of, hello, you play to win the game. You know, so yeah, if anybody knows about winning the game, it's this guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Herman Edwards was, not only famous for that one play in Philadelphia, uh, with Philadelphia, but with uh, his brief time as a head coach in the NFL, which I believe he, he coached the Jets at that time of that press conference and then went on to tr- to coach the Kansas City Chiefs. Mm-hmm. So I think his career lasted up until the late 2000s. I believe so. During that play, so Miracle refers to that one specific play where it looked pretty hopeless for the Eagles. They were down 17 to 12. The Giants were trying to kill time off the clock. No quarterback kneel. John McVay didn't want rolling around on the ground. He didn't want his quarterback to do that. He just wanted to run the ball and kill the time. There was a couple of blips. They screw up the exchange. The Eagles, who on that play called an 11-man all-out blitz, because that's all you could do at that point if you know that the team is trying to run out, run out the clock, mm-hmm. ends up scooping the ball taking it to the house, and it just pretty much simplified how poor the Giants' season was going. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's a bit of a, a microcosm of, like, how yeah, exactly, how things were going just generally with the organization, and it's definitely a turning point, and any Giants fan or otherwise will tell you that Obviously, you know, this was a watershed moment for the franchise in, in a way, in a negative way, I guess. Yeah. So there was a couple of events that, that happened uh, as a result of, the, of this play. Mm-hmm. And one thing was that uh, it did legitimize the QB kneel. And after the game, both teams, the Eagles and the Giants, implemented victory formations. So as a result of this extreme fuck up, <laughs> it actually changed the game in a positive way. And then on the Giants' side, coaching staff-wise, it led to uh, John McVay's firing. The Giants let him go at the end of the season. But then from there, the management was still in 
sort of a toss up. They didn't know which direction to go to. Mm -hmm. It sort of set in motion the hiring of their future general manager, which we will uh, talk about soon, who's uh, George Young. Yeah, Uh, exactly. But back to John McVeigh. John McVeigh gets fired, and then he ends up on the staff of the San Francisco 49ers and works hand-in-hand with future Hall of Fame coach Bill Walsh. So John McVeigh is actually credited with building, helping to build the San Francisco 49ers dynasty of the 80s to the point where his name is plastered all over the war room in, in San Francisco. Right. And that makes sense. And then, like, obviously with the way John McVeigh is a part of that, then that leads to his grandson, Sean, being exposed to football at such a young age, you yeah. know, and, and that makes him one of the youngest head coaches in the league at this point. So you can see how, like, little things and little, well, not little, but, like, events like these kind of set different things in motion all the way across the league and for years to come they have that kind of a ripple effect yeah basically events that happen in the nfl always have tentacles to it that's it exactly so one of the main things that happened as a result of this as you said extreme fuck up was that you know organizationally i think the giants knew that it was time to shake things up so wellington mara had been in charge of football operations for the Giants since the 1930s, since basically he'd been given control of the team by his father. And the miracle of the Meadowlands kind of allowed them to realize it was time to outsource some of the responsibilities to someone else. And that way, Wellington uh, and Tim could kind of step back and kind of deal with their own drama. Obviously, you'd mentioned that they were feuding with each other at the time. So it was kind of a lot of discontent and, you know, things were kind of discombobulated in the whole organization. So at that point, they went to the owner of the league at that point was Pete Rozelle, and they asked for a recommendation. And so the Giants hired George Young to be their GM, who was previously with the Miami Dolphins, which, again, Larry Zonka was also with, with the Dolphins. I'm not sure if George Young was actually a part of the undefeated season or not, but it's very possible as, you know, Kind of that was 72, so now we're talking maybe eight years later or so. But anyway, so basically he would take part, or he would be the general manager. Wellington Mara would no longer be in charge of personnel matters for the team. Along with this, George Young also hired Ray Perkins to be the new head coach, who was an offensive assistant in San Diego. Most importantly for the future of the franchise, they would hire Bill Parcells to coach their linebackers, and Bill Belichick would actually start out as their special teams coach. So those of you obviously familiar with the NFL in any sort of capacity at this point probably know who Bill Belichick is and Bill Parcells. You will get to know him soon, if you don't already. But basically, with young Parcells and Belichick and Perkins, would will basically lay the groundwork for a powerhouse team in the 80s. So one of the main sort of philosophical shifts for the Giants in terms of football strategy was to move from a 4-3 defense to a 3-4 defense. So basically, again, just to explain it, the 4-3 defense, which had been in place, uh, we mentioned that Tom Landry was actually the inventor of that defense and, you know, had been successful for them, you know, over the years, but obviously, you know, times had changed. 
but the basic principle of a 4-3 is that there are four down linemen and three linebackers, as opposed to a 3-4 that has three down linemen and four linebackers. It kind of gives them a little bit more versatility. I guess if you were to look for the classic example of a 3-4 defense in today's game, what would that be, Theo? The Steelers? I guess it would be the Steelers. Steelers or Ravens? Would I think there's too many hybrid fronts to really yeah. zero one specific team. Yeah. But if you were to look at a classic example, it would be the Steelers of the of the 2000s. Yeah, exactly. Or you could say like, oh, a 4-3 defense would be like the San Francisco 49ers last year or this year where they had, you know, Bosa uh, coming off the edge. Uh, or the Eagles. Or yeah. the Eagles, exactly, exactly. So those are the two kind of main defensive philosophies. So with Parcells coming in to coach the linebackers, they had a huge philosophical shift in that sense. Once Young was hired as the GM in 1979, his first pick was a quarterback out of Moorhead State, which is little known, you know, for football. But basically it was Phil Sims. So basically... He wanted to start off the franchise with a new, headed in a new direction, and, and Phil Sims was his pick. I would say the most iconic pick by George Young would be a player by the name of Lawrence Taylor, who is, I think he was number three all time in the top 100 greatest players of all time in the NFL. So basically a generational talent uh, that would shape strategy and scouting in the NFL for years to come. Again, we'll get more into that later. So the linebacking core was also aided by the presence of Harry Carson, who helped the defense and their formidable linebackers, who were nicknamed the Crunch Bunch. So this is now heading into the 80s, where obviously 80 and 81, they're kind of still not a great team, but then obviously it takes time to, to kind of build that. And so the linebacking core came to kind of be the what defined the team's defense yep. moving into the 80s. The anchor of the team. And exactly. it's interesting to note that Parcells' background is as a linebacker's coach. Exactly. He was really heavy-handed in, in developing that defense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like Perkins was an offensive coach, right? Yeah, he, he didn't, was. He, his, his main focus was on the offense, right? And, de- and trying to develop Phil Sims. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, they really heavily relied on, on Parcells on the opposite side of the ball. Definitely. Definitely. And you can see, you know, his fingerprints all over it. I mean, especially because he was the linebacker coach and the crunch bunch was probably the only sort of name brand thing for the first couple of years of the 80s. So basically, after this strike shortened 1982 season, Ray Perkins would actually take a job at Alabama, which opened the door for Parcells to take over as the head coach. So again, uh, obviously, is going from the linebacker coach to the head coach. There's lo- a lot more emphasis on the defense, and it would become a pretty dominant defense throughout the 80s. Eventually, Bill Belichick would also be named as a defensive assistant, eventually moving to defensive coordinator in 1985. Well, you know, think about that. Mm. It's so Parcells becomes the head coach, yeah, and sort of leaves the defensive coordinator position, sort of unambiguous and doesn't really give him the defined role of defensive coordinator until 1985 (laughs) you know he's working on this team and it's clear that that bill belichick is the leader on defense Mm -hmm. 
And it's similar to what Belichick does a, a lot nowadays with his coordinators. Where, like, technically Brian Flores, before getting the Dolphins job, was not even, like, until midway through the season was named def- Like, he was in charge of the defensive responsibilities right. without actually carrying the title of defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's more of just a collaborative effort versus, you know, this is your role. You know, we're going to aggregate this responsibility to you. Because Parcells still had a very heavy input on the defense despite coaching the team in its entirety. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can see kind of the level of specialization with Parcells obviously being a, a linebacking coach and, and everything. But it's interesting that you draw that parallel between obviously what Parcells did back then and what Bill Belichick still does now with a lot of his assistants. I mean, you can definitely see where the influence comes from. So while Belichick, yeah, may have had his fingerprints over the defense, he wasn't actually named defensive coordinator until 1985. We'll we'll get more into that later on. But basically, in 1983, you had Bill Parcells take over as head coach. Immediately... Parcells had a QB controversy on his hands between Phil Simms and Scott Bruner. So when Phil Simms had been drafted, I mean, not a lot of people were impressed with the pick, shall we say? That's the sense I get, was that maybe the Giants had kind of reached for Phil Simms because they obviously wanted a quarterback to start their franchise with. But Phil Simms kind of struggled with poor play and injuries in his first couple of seasons to the point that Phil Simms would actually be benched for Scott Bruner in Parcells' first season as head coach. This ultimately turned out to be the wrong choice as I think they went 3-12-1 that season. (laughs) So... Clearly, uh, you know, Bruner, uh, you know, God bless him, but he didn't do too well. Ultimately, like I said, Sims would kind of take over uh, and be brought back in as the starter the following season. And with the core of the Giants installed, would kind of signal the beginning of a very fruitful decade for the team. So clearly you can see the organizational structure in terms of the coaching and the, and the main core of players had already set in. Despite having a losing season. Exactly. There was more optimism because you had all these weapons mm-hmm. on both sides of the ball. Exactly. Isn't it interesting that like what had happened to Phil Sims would never happen to a young quarterback nowadays? Where you would just and it wasn't like Scott Bruner was completely on the like tail end of his career, mm-hmm. you know? he was another viable option and could have started at quarterback for at least like a few good seasons. Yeah. They sort of played with the idea of, of having Sims on and off the bench. And I just think that would never happen nowadays because it would completely kill the confidence of a quarterback. Right. You know, you know, having Daniel Jones, you know, they're seeing how this plays out over the last two seasons. You know, there's no question that he's going to be benched for, for another guy, they want to see him play, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because they know as soon as they bench him, it's pretty much the beginning of the end. Right. Exactly. I would agree with that. I mean, I guess thinking just off the top of my head, if you had to compare it to a situation nowadays, it would kind of be like Mitch Trubisky and, and Nick Foles. Yeah. Where it's kind of like you've seen flashes from Trubisky, but then you've also seen some pretty awful play from him. 
Now, with yeah. him, it's less to do with injuries and more just to do with inconsistency. And luckily for the Bears, I think they're doing better than the Giants did. They're definitely, they already have more than three wins. But yeah, you don't really see it too much. I think to, nowadays there's a bit more expectation on rookies coming in immediately and, and having an impact. It's not even so much that. What, it, what I'm trying to say is that the position was more or less treated like any other position back then mm-hmm. versus nowadays you could just rotate a guy in and out back then and it wouldn't it wouldn't affect the morale of the team as much as it, it does now right. like the fact that trubisky got benched signaled that it was the beginning of the end for him right right i would agree with that mm-hmm. the bear will be if they aren't satisfied with nick Foles looking for his replacement in the upcoming off season. That's the thing. And it's also, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the salary cap and free agency has more to do with teams being more hesitant to bench <laughs> players now. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the sunk cost fallacy of like, oh, we're paying this guy X number of dollars. We got to get him out there on the field, see what he can do. Versus now where it's like basically in the 80s, the teams organizationally had a lot more control over their players in terms of where they could play, you know, and they'd be under contract for longer. So you wouldn't be you wouldn't be so much afraid to make a change if you thought that that was what was best for your organization. In, in, a, yeah. in a way. And then also rookies nowadays are significantly cheaper. So mm-hmm. It's once like if you can get a really good young quarterback on a rookie contract, you can, you know, pump a lot more money into the rest of your team. Exactly. So so you want to know right away what you what you're working with. Exactly. So I think we will end it off here for this episode. But suffice it to say that, I mean, we're talking about rookies. The next episode will include a lengthy discussion on probably one of the best players ever to the best be on rookie the of all time. The best rookie of all time, uh, arguably. But for now, uh, thanks for listening to Check Down Charlie's and uh, stay tuned. We got some good stuff coming up for you guys. Thanks for listening to the Check Down Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.